So the first reading from the book of Romans, chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came from Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shredding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. And the second reading is from John's Gospel, chapter 11, verses 25 to 27. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who came into the world. Thanks be to God for his word. Uh, so let's look at this topic together. Um, hopefully those in the building, once you came in, you might have picked up a handout um, at the door. Uh, they're very welcome. You're very welcome to take one of those away with you. Uh, online, there should be a link to the handout in the description block, uh, box below the video um, if you want to find that, and you can uh, follow that along if you would like to. Um, now, I came across the other day a, uh, a story of a man who had been ordered before a judge because he had committed a, just a, a traffic parking violation. He had parked somewhere he shouldn't. This was in uh, Rhode Island in the USA, uh, with a judge who was renowned for being a little bit unorthodox at times. Anyway, this was a small case, but the man and his family were all in court as the case was heard, and the judge came to conclusions about what the man should receive. But as he looked around the court, he noticed that there was a boy with the man, a little boy. And he said, is this your son? And the man said, oh yes, yes, this is, this is my son, my five-year-old son. And the judge asked for the boy to come up onto the bench with him and join him. What on earth is going on here? Why is, why is he calling this boy up to join him? And he said to the boy, got him sitting down next to him, and he said to the boy, look, 
I'm having trouble with this case. I'm having trouble with it. Because I have a situation where your dad is charged with parking on a street, essentially, that he shouldn't have done, and I have three choices. I can fine him $90, I can charge him $30, or I can charge him nothing. And he said to the boy, which do you think I should do? Yeah, exactly. Everyone began smiling at this point. And you can see in the video that's shown up, the, the little boy, without skipping a beat, and of course it's his dad, it's his dad who will have to pay this, okay? It's his dad who he's got to go home with afterwards. I mean, let's face it, everyone thinks he's going to say nothing, shouldn't give him anything. But without blinking, the little boy goes, 30. And he says what people weren't expecting. And they're all smiling by this point. It's fine. He loves his dad, and he cares about his dad. And yet, even a little boy of about five years old says, dad should have to pay something for this. Even a child of five year, years old gets the idea that when something wrong has happened, there has to be something pay in, paid in response. He's five years old and he grasps that. Now what transpires afterwards is that the kid, having said all of this, the judge in fact rules that the fine is going to be relinquished, but he says to the kid and the dad in his unorthodox style, but what I want you to do is, pointing at the dad, you need to take this little boy for breakfast, and it had better be a good breakfast, because I've just let you off $30, he said. And so I bet the kid got a very nice breakfast that morning from, uh, from his dad, and he let the boy down. Everyone's smiling. They walk out of the courtroom together. But isn't it interesting? Even a child understands justice, and even a judge is able by some means to forgive a crime and bring two people into a closer relationship with each other once again might have something to relate to what we're thinking about this morning. Do you know, many people, Christians included, they, they, they struggle. They don't like this idea of God being a God of justice and judgment. They would rather think of God strictly in terms of his love, his grace, and his mercy. And, and you would, wouldn't you? Now, those things are great. He thankfully, wonderfully is a God who is loving beyond what we can imagine, who is gracious beyond what we deserve, and who is merciful towards us. Where would we be without those elements of his character? We would be totally and utterly lost. But there are two problems with that only being how we think about God. And the first is this, that in order to grasp the good news of God's grace, the wonderful, great news of his grace, you've got to first be able to grasp the bad news, haven't you? The bad news of the consequences of our sin. There's got to be some reason why Jesus did what he did. It wasn't just an arbitrary thing 
or as good example to us of a sacrificial life, there's got to be some reason why God would send his son a display of love for us, his grace and mercy towards us, particularly as Jesus Christ hung on the cross. You can't actually be gracious and merciful if there's nothing to be gracious and merciful about. That's true, isn't it? And second, I don't understand the discounting of the justice of God because it makes a mockery, of course, of those things we've been talking about already this morning, the justice systems and moral judgments that we see as absolutely necessary to life here on earth, the need to punish wrongdoing. You know, now, of course, our earthly systems, they're, they're, they're imperfect, yeah. They, they've got their flaws because we are fundamentally flawed people. So they're going to have flaws. But I hope none of us would say that they aren't absolutely necessary for life here on earth. Otherwise, there'd be total anarchy in this world, more so than there is already. Let's face it, a judge who never punishes wrongdoing is not good because he is not being just. Yet some people seem to think that God punishing sin and sinners somehow makes him a a bad, mean God. I would flip that on its head and say, do you know what? He's not much of a God if he doesn't have some kind of a say. In fact, the ultimate say in what is right and wrong, what's best for us ultimately, and how wrongdoing has to be accounted for. He's God. He just wouldn't be God without that right and ability. And we think about it to do do with ourselves. Think about it. If someone wronged you in some terrible way and that inbuilt feeling we have of a need for some kind of justice rose, as as it does do for us as, as those things happen, and yet God turned around and went, oh, no, it's not that bad. Grace and mercy, remember? You'd say there was something wrong about that and wrong about him. But thankfully, we do have a God of justice, not least for the poor, oppressed, and marginalized in our world, but thankfully a God of justice over sin, which is vital, but of course it presents us with something of a problem, doesn't it? Uh, Because we read in the Bible for the wages of sin, is death. And so we have to look in this series at why God has set things up the way he has and what he has done as a result. And we're going to look at three headings this morning, three words, in fact, that relate to the whole theme of sacrifice and salvation. The three words are atonement, justification, and resurrection. They're good Bible words, aren't they? They're very good Bible words. But we're going to look at those three uh, in order this morning on this theme. So first of all, atonement. That's a very good Bible word, isn't it? Atonement, but what does it mean? Better you could say at one month is really what we're talking about. The idea that God himself has done something costly in order to purchase our salvation for us, on our behalf, bringing us back to himself. Atonement is what we're talking about. Which is why in Romans 3, having introduced the problem for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, a reality none of us can escape, 
Paul the writer goes on to tell exactly, exactly what Jesus therefore came to do in order to make this at one month with him once again. Verse 25, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. Some of the most wonderful words we can ever read in the Bible of what Jesus has done for us. Because, you know, there are basically two great lies, I suppose, in our culture today along these lines. The first would be to say, and you do hear it quite a lot, is that we are basically good people with just a few kinks that need ironing out. And I can see why that would obviously be popular. No one wants to think negatively about themselves, but that's not what the Bible tells us. And the second idea is that when we're talking about God's judgments, what we're really talking about are those who have performed the big sins, the big things. Those are the people who need to be judged. You know, it's, it's, it's the murderers, the rapists, the drug traffickers. But they're all out somewhere, somewhere out there somewhere, and the rest of us are basically all right and just need, in need of a bit of therapy, something like that. But again, that's not the problem that the Bible tells us about. This thing we call sin lies at the heart of the human condition. It's to have life on our own terms, to do as we please without listening to our maker. Uh, the Cope Explored course explained it. Rico Tice said, it's the attitude of my life, my rules, and we all suffer from it. And, it, and its root is way, 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 way back in the Bible, the early stages of the Bible. God creates this perfect, this glorious world, and the rules by which that perfection is going to be maintained. There was basically one rule for Adam and Eve, okay? One rule. We talk about having one job, well, they got one rule that they had to follow. And the rule was this, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Have anything else you want, God said. Have anything from the garden. All of these other trees, all of these other fruits, all of these other uh, goodness is available to you. You can have anything you want, all the good and lovely things I've provided. Don't eat that one. Just that one. And the reason he did it was so that we could have actual choice about our relationship with him. That we could actually have some means to make a choice. He didn't trap us into a relationship with him. He gave us real choice about it. Which I think, again, we would all agree is a good thing. You want real choice. But of course, what do they do with the choice? They get a little nudge from a serpent along the way. And they ate from the one tree they were forbidden from eating from and fell from God's grace. The, the relationship was fundamentally broken. Trust was lost. And sin enters the world for the first time. And God says, you have to leave the garden. You've got to leave it now. 
Because he can't have a rebellious people living in a perfect world. He can't be around sin himself. So holy he is before he walked with them in the garden. Imagine that. Walking with God in this garden in the cool of the day. This idyllic picture Genesis paints. And suddenly all of that is lost. Because we made a choice. And we've been living with the consequences ever since. That's why in Ephesians 2.3, Paul writes, we were by nature deserving of wrath, or wrath, depending on how you say it. Now that's New Testament, okay. That, that's not Old Testament. You know, a wrathful God in the New Testament continues. It's, it's not all just when you get to the New Testament, suddenly you become this, uh, this God of total, absolute love, and that's it. There's nothing else to his character, that it's all kind of unicorns and rainbows when we get beyond Jesus. I mean, have we read the book of Revelation, for example? Have you seen what happened to Jesus at the cross? Something monumental takes place then, and something monumental is going to take place as well, because something in particular needed dealing with between God and humanity, a just God whose just wrath over sin needed, and here's the word again, atoning for. It needed something to deal with it. It was directed at us because we fell, we sinned, we were in the wrong. So that only our death could pay that price, that's the cost. And it is terrible, isn't it? It is terrible. It's an awful thing. You know, frightening even. It's why at the end of days, and we'll get to this in a couple of weeks and touch on it, God separates the whole of humanity into those who have accepted the means by which atonement is made. Jesus Christ received his forgiveness and those who have not done that. And the Bible talks about hell then in those terms. Because that's the justice of God. The right justice of God over the very nature that caused our fall and continues to rack the whole of humanity ever since. And it presents this problem at the same time as presenting the truth. That we are all in need of a saviour, therefore. We need a saviour. And in fact, that is what the rest of the Bible story, the whole of the Bible story, is all about. You know, the, the, the laws in the Old Testament, okay, showing the ways of God in black and white. We went from one rule in the garden that they broke to suddenly having, ha having to make, God having to make all of these other rules and laws and obligations that, that, that was trying to conduct how we're to relate to him and to other people. All of these laws come into place and the rules displayed where we continue to go wrong because we couldn't keep them. The whole Old Testament sacrificial system, it was set up. It was set up because of our continuing to sin. It proved that the only way sin could be atoned for was by the death of something. That's what the symbolism was about. But even then, the sacrifices in the Old Testament, they were imperfect. They didn't manage to do 
full atonement for us. If it's when we get to the, the New Testament, in Hebrews 10, we're told that these were just powerless to truly deal with sin. Uh, told, we're told in Hebrews 10 verses 1 to 4, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. It, it functioned to point us to something else. All those Old Testament things were pointing towards a greater reality that was coming. For this reason, it and we can never, by the same sacrifices made year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshippers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats, those Old Testament sacrifices, to take away sins. You can see what the writer was saying. Those day after day those week after week, month after month, year after year of endless sacrifices, exhausting sacrifices that were going off, that, that were going on in, in Jerusalem. Even all of those, they weren't enough to deal with the root problem. They were like, you know, when, when you sew a, a patch onto a tear in a garment, yeah, or maybe on some trousers or a skirt or something. You know, a patch doesn't deal with the underlying tear, does it? It just kind of covers it. The tear is still there. It covers it and makes uh, do before you eventually have to replace the garment in its entirety. Which is why, when we get to the New Testament, and we get to Jesus himself and his death, we read the incredible words of Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In fact, some of the most transformative words in the entire of the Bible, he wrote, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. It's new. It's far, far better. And his name is Jesus. He would fulfill all of the old in all of its requirements and present to us the new so that we fallen people can be remade. That's how awesome his promise is. It's why Hebrews 10 will carry on to say, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. No messing about. The perfect sinless sacrifice becoming sin for us so that all of our sins, every single one, are dealt with through him. And somehow we take on his standing with God and we're made right with God once again. That's incredible. That is the greatest gift 
in the entire universe. Certainly beyond what we deserve. And yet Jesus did that for every single one of us. It's the means by which we can know, in fact, what true love is in the first place. 1 John chapter 4, 9 to 10. This is how God shows his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him because we couldn't on our own terms. We proved that from the very start. This is love. Not that we loved God or did anything on our own terms, you could add, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. There's the word again, atoning. A way to make us and bring us back to God. You remember a few years ago, in fact it's more than a few years, it's about uh, 12 years ago now, the, the incredible events of the Chilean mining disaster. Do you remember that? You know, where, where the miners were trapped underground. 33 men for, I think it was 67 days or something like that, trapped in an underground mine shaft uh, due to a cave-in. And obviously it hit the world news, didn't it? We all started hearing about it. Uh, we got news updates every single day, and it affected each of us. Each day we'd find out a bit more, but the reality was, was bleak, even as the, as the rescue mission was underway. There was no way, there was no way in entirety that those miners were getting out by themselves. They just couldn't do it. 700 meters they were below the surface of the earth. Think about how, how far that is. That's, what, one meter? 700 of those under rock. There's no way you're getting out from that from down below, is there? No means by which to order their own lives in such a way that they could get out to the light again, that they could uh, see their families again, that they could do all the things that they were doing. They were totally and utterly trapped. What did it take to rescue them? What it take, did it take to bring them back into those family relationships and loving relationships they knew once before? Well, it took someone, didn't it? In fact, it took an international team of people with all of the technology available to us to drill down through 700 meters of rock from the outside to reach the men and then to pluck them one at a time from the jaws of their entrapment and bring them up to the surface and save them once again. There's a picture of the, the guy who went down, the first person to go down and rescue them on the screen there. Do you know when... Jesus entered this world when he hung on a cross and when he uttered his last words before death, three little words, it is finished. He was making a value statement on what he was doing and he was saying, it is now done and the rescue is complete. Someone from outside of us, because we couldn't save ourselves, came to this earth 
and made a way when there was no other way. And in fact, the very words of the, the it is finished words mean a transaction has been completed. You know, when you pay a large bill and say, thank goodness that's done. Jesus, with three words, was saying, costly price paid. Costly work done, and it is now done. You get at this center of the idea of atonement, a perfect substitute dying in our place, taking our punishment, and wonderfully, graciously, lovingly holding out his nail-scarred hands to the world and saying, and now you come back to me. Come back to me and find forgiveness and grace in your time of need. It's why our response has to be genuine, meaningful to have any effect. It's why Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 to 20, he would tell us about ourselves. He said, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Honor God with your lives, because the gospel works and it's worked for us. If you've placed your faith, your trust in what the Savior has done for you. And what specifically has he done? Well, that's the, the second word. He, he justifies us. The declaration made by him. Uh, which is a legal term. Uh, you can ask, I'm sure, Les. It's a, it's a legal term, justified. In the catastrophic events of the cross where the creator of the universe dies, it is catastrophic. But there's a reason why in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus, as fully man, fully God, as we looked at last week, is, he takes a moment to pray and says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Because what is about to happen is the darkest act in all of history, both at a personal level and at a cosmic level at large. The darkest act to kill the Savior, uh, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. But of course, what does he follow it with? He follows it with the words that make so much, uh, that mean so much to us, yet not my will but yours be done, he follows it with. Because he knows it's the only way. He knows there's no other way which, we can, uh, which he, the sins of people can be dealt with. That he can declare them as justified again made right before God in right standing, restoring a redeemed relationship between God and humanity once again, all those who put their faith in what he has done. Darkness covers the whole area as this takes place. The temple curtain is torn in two as he cries, it is finished. It's terrible at one level, and yet glorious at the other, because we see the mercy of God at its fullest extent. And that is the greatest of graces, greatest of mercies that we love about the gospel message, isn't it? Because it's life, it's hope, it's relationship restored once again. Through this one act, an act that we could not do and only God could do, and there in Calvary on a hill just outside Jerusalem, 
he does it. It is finished. That's why Romans would say, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. His blood bought sacrifice once for all for the sins of the world. That's God's gift to us. How are we granted that? How are we given that justification? Well, Romans 3 helps us with that as well. Verse 22, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's this condition attached to it, isn't there? That we've got to trust what he says. Trust what he's done for us. We can't just rock up to heaven at the end of days and say, oh yeah, so it is all true then. <laughs> Looking God in the eye. Oh, well, I'll believe in him now. No. It's the realization that has to come in our earthly home, which is what makes it faith. So that we get, when we get to that point, we're ready for it. Therefore, since we are justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Since we have been justified by his blood, how much more will we be saved from God's wrath through him? You hear the problem of the wrath? Dealt with at the cross. Dealt with in Jesus. You know, I wonder if the reason why the translators, or well, I assume it's the translators involved, even went to the pains on that second verse to put an exclamation mark at the end of it. How much more will we be saved from God's wrath through him? Exclamation mark. Because it's so important. And of course, it's where we get the most famous of Bible verses from the lips of Jesus himself, which is also absolutely true. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Atoned for, justified, not on our merit, all because of him, and that is the gospel. That is the gospel. The message that our world needs to hear to be saved and to gain a new life in him. Uh, which gets us to the last word for this morning, resurrection. The new life that is given by him to us. Uh, there was a story that I came across um, last year of a family whose pet cat had gone missing. And they, having sent out search parties in the days following, they, they found no trace of this cat um, and presumed the worst. Uh, eventually, a local resident sadly reported a dead cat on the motorway near their home, which matched the description that had been given. And so, uh, sadly, they accepted the cat's fate. Highways England gave the, the cat back to the family so it could be properly cremated and a proper farewell undertaking, which they duly did. 
Uh, particularly impacted their, their seven-year-old son, whose, whose bed, Frankie the cat, as he was known, uh, used to sleep on. It was all really, really sad. You can imagine their shock when just a few days later, Frankie the cat waltzed back in through the door of their house, alive and well, taking them all completely by surprise. And I was really struck by what the seven-year-old son, we had a five-year-old earlier on, now we're on seven-year-old, okay, said to the news reporters, it hit national news and it was reported, and he said of this incredible turn of events, it's a miracle. We thought he had died. Coupled with the realization, of course, that what they had done was cremated someone else's cat, in essence. But they called it a miracle. I'll tell you what the real miracle would have been. As if what had actually been dead came back to life again. That really would be a miracle, wouldn't it? If someone were to see the most effective killing machine in history, the Roman Empire, crucify someone, and then just three days later, the days following on, the same person walked back in, was seen alive and well once again, because death itself could not hold them. It's those wonderful words of Jesus in the second passage we read earlier on, that Jesus could look a grieving woman in the eye, who had just lost her, her, her brother, could look a grieving woman who had just lost her brother in the eye, call her to believe in him, telling her to trust him, because in his own words he would say, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And he could look someone straight in the eye and say that because he knew what was coming. In fact, he raised Lazarus from the dead first of all, didn't he? But one day that would be fulfilled in what he would do at the cross when he paid the punishment for our sin. It could not hold him, death, because he was sinless. He did no wrong. And so three days later, just as he said he would, where did people see him? Well, they saw him alive and well again. Walking around saying, it's me. Come and look at the nail scars in my wrists. Come and touch my side where the spear was shoved in. Come and see, because I'm back. I've risen and beaten death at its own game. And somehow, in some cosmic way that we don't fully understand, he, said to, he says to us, and you've got that promise as well. You get the promise. If you trust in me and believe in me, new life is available to you as well. It's why when at Christian funerals, 
We read a passage often from 1 Corinthians 15. I mean, the Bible is so candid about death and its hold on people. Now Jesus Christ has risen, beating it at its own game. We read those words. Where, O death, is your victory? Where is your victory? Really? Where, O death, is your sting? Because as Jesus died to justify us, to make atonement for our sin, so he had a miracle yet to work for us. To rise and beat death at its own game. To lead a victory that we get to stand in the wake of ourselves. Because he gives that gift to us. And because of that gift, it's new life. It's the start of a process that reshapes us, that begins to reform us as his people, that, that makes us more increasingly as we grow in him, as we learn more about him, as we, as we spend time in prayer with him, as he speaks into our lives, transforms us to become more and more like him. A new life given to us, one we should all pursue. Not just sins forgiven, but a, a fresh start. A new life that's empowered because at the resurrection, Jesus proved his words to be true and proved that even death cannot prevent a life being transformed when he is in control of it. Now, we could go into the evidences for, for the resurrection. All I'm going to simply do is just highlight this little book here. Um, it's based on the case for Christ. It's a little shortened version of the case for Easter. They're available in the foyer back there. There's about 10 or so copies that you can take away if, you, if you're interested in looking into that. Or if you know someone who is, as we get towards this Easter season upcoming, do take those. They're freely available. But how do these truths shape us this week? Well, the first thing to ask is, and they're questions this morning, do you know Jesus? You can't finish this one without that question. You just can't do it. Have you trusted in him for your forgiveness and salvation because he offers it to us? We need to accept his truth, receive his grace in order to be called one of his children again. Do you know him? You know, today could be that day. Today, for someone watching at home, that could be today for you. And I'd encourage you not to leave this place or leave this service online without seriously considering that offer and what it could mean for you. Uh, number two, for those who have believed, do you know from how much you've been bought? It's one of the realities of this. You know, that verse about us not being our own anymore is also true. We are not our own masters. God is. He always was. But before Jesus, we didn't accept him as that. Now in Jesus, how much more we're to understand what he's done for us, the cost of his sacrifice, and to love him all the more as a result, which is, I hope a message like this is going to do. That it would stir something us within us to love him all the more for what he's done for us. A love so that we 
cannot help but be changed by him. To turn back, to run into his loving arms again and find grace, for it's by that grace we're saved. At number three, do you know what has been defeated at the cross? That both death and evil have now been given their critical blow. You know, the battle still rages, but the war has been won. It's been won. In World War II, it said that one of the most decisive moments was when the Japanese tried to take out Pearl Harbor in the South Pacific, inflicting terrible loss of life. But in the damage of the enemy's plans, the U.S. entered the war and came back fighting. It was not the end. It was only a new beginning. Do you know what's been defeated with us? We're no longer powerless. Death has no lasting hold on us. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. So let's live with the confidence that he has done that and new life is truly available in him. And finally, last one. How much more do we need to share it? I mean, it's on our mission statement, sharing Jesus, that we would people who would share this message with the world simply and honestly. The wonderful truth of Jesus dealing with our sin, welcoming us back, and holding out his hands with an offer that is beyond any other offer we will ever have in this life. That's joy. That's hope. And that's what we need to share with those around us. We believe in the atoning sacrifice of Christ on the cross, dying in our place, paying the price of sin and defeating evil, so reconciling us with God. The justification of sinners solely by the grace of God through faith in Christ and the bodily resurrection of Christ, the first fruits of our salvation, his ascension to the Father, his reign and mediation as the only Savior of the world. Let's pray and give thanks for all he's done for us. Lord, uh, as we've spoken this morning, these can be hard truths to hear at one level. That there is a problem that needs dealing with in our hearts. That, that sin is not just something we can ignore or a bit of naughtiness on the side, but that it's a real thing that really gets in the way of our relationship with you and that has to be dealt with in your justice. And at the same time, Father, as we think on that, we are utterly, utterly gobsmacked by what Jesus has also done for us in response. That you would come into this world as a man, not just a man, as a baby, vulnerable, opening yourself up to humanity itself and living as one of us, yet perfect and sinless, 
And yet always with that purpose in mind that you were heading towards the cross, that final place where judgment would be dealt with, where wrath would be appeased, and where new life would be bought. And Father, we come before you this morning with hearts full of gratitude for that. Hearts full of thanksgiving because of what you've done for us. That in Jesus Christ, every sin is dealt with. Every sin is forgiven. Every single one of us has the opportunity for a fresh standing in life and for eternity because of what Jesus did. Lord, would you help us to cherish that truth all the more? May it impact us. May it grow our love for you ever deeper because we understand more of what you've done for us when we didn't deserve it and couldn't earn it. May that convict us, Lord, to live lives that are even closer and growing to become more like that great Savior who gave himself for us. And in the same way, Lord God, we pray that you would do the work in our lives that we cannot do to transform us, to fill our lives with hope as we look to the future, to fill our lives with joy because we know where we're heading, to fill our lives with thanksgiving and gratitude for all you've done for us and to live in light of those truths. Help us, we pray, to look to you, to see your wisdom afresh and apply it to our lives. In your name we ask. Amen.